So Luke chapter 18, starting from verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you, Rico. Good morning. Welcome. Glad to be sharing from God's Word with you. Wherever we go, we're bombarded by adverts and offers in stores, online, magazines, on the streets, on the way to church this morning, I counted at least 20 signs providing some sort of service or product that we should try. There's always somebody trying to offer us to try something or to buy something, isn't there? And over time, we develop the skill of distinguishing between a good deal and a bad deal. And a higher level of proficiency is achieved when we can scrutinize different good deals or seemingly good deals. Consider the following, for instance. A 12-bedroom French chateau could be yours for just 200,000 pounds. Or free 20-pound food voucher from your favorite store. Or a get two-for-one cinema tickets for a whole year from just one pound. Or my personal favorite, a free treat on your birthday from Subway. All these sound like great deals, and 
you know, there's, there's a lot of truth to them. But there's a pressing question that comes to our mind when we hear these questions and when we hear, see, these, see these offers. We ask ourselves, what's the catch, right? This, is, this sounds too good to be true. There's got to be something behind these offers. And so you dig a bit deeper only to find out that that French chateau is in the middle of nowhere and it takes a lot of renovation. The 20-pound food voucher is yours only when you spend 100 pounds in store. The two-for-one cinema tickets that start from one pound, well, that's it, they start from some one pound, but they're rarely that. It's more like 50 pounds per year. The free feed from Subway, it's free, it's true, but you have to download the app and give them a lot of information about you so they can bombard you with more advertisements and end up, you know, end up spending more money there. There's always a catch. Maybe those trades and those conditions are fair to you and you think they're all right. But is it true that behind every good deal there's a, there's a lie or there's a catch? You know the saying, if it's too good to be true, maybe it's too good to be true. Maybe it's too good or maybe it's not true. But what about heaven? What about heaven? We know it's real. It's not a lie because God established it. God, the creator of the universe, made it happen. And it's a great and beautiful place, and it's open for everybody to enter it. But is there a catch? Do you have to do something to qualify? Do you have to offer something to be counted in? Do you need to belong to a certain group of people to be allowed in? Do you have to be religious or be part of the good people category to be part of the kingdom of God and enter heaven? Who really gets to enter heaven? That's the most important question to ask because your life, my life, and all of our lives depends on it. Eternity is at stake. Get the answer right and you're in. But get the answer wrong and you stay out and you will face the wrath and judgment of God. Last week we were looking at how people who place their confidence in the mercy of God, not in their own righteousness, that enter the kingdom. Today, we'll see another side to this truth. We'll see that the kingdom belongs to those who receive it like a gift without asking what's the catch or asking God what do you want in return. We'll do this by examining two types of people that came to Jesus, children and the young ruler. Only one of those two was welcomed in. The other remained outside. Let's look at the children first as those receiving the kingdom. Read with me from verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We don't know anything about these children except that they're babies, they're infants. That's what Luke calls them, the gospel writer. In Judaism, there was a common practice of Jewish elderly people blessing young children. They would place their hands on them and recite the prayer as a form of blessing on the children. So it's possible that these parents or these adults were bringing their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. At the same time, we read in Luke that large crowds of people had followed Jesus from city to city. 
hearing his preaching and watching his miracle, but also they wanted to touch him. In Luke 6, 19, it says, And the people all tried to touch him because the power or because power was coming from him and healing them all. So it could be that these, ba- these babies were sick and their parents had hoped for Jesus to touch them and heal them and free them from their sickness. Regardless what the situation is, what we're seeing here before us is not something wrong or random or completely out of the blue. It was common. It was all right. There was good reasons behind it. But Jesus' disciples didn't think so. Jesus' disciples did not tolerate this. They rebuked the people for bringing the people, the children, to Jesus, yelling at them for even considering it and trying to stop them from approaching Jesus. Now, it's helpful to think about children, how children were thought of in Jesus' days. By contrast, when we see babies today, we think that they are very cute and very innocent. Um, We have a highly romanticized image of children, don't we? They are little angels, so pure and so cuddly. Who could look away from a crying baby or a smiling baby or a laughing baby? We love babies. Our society loves babies. Society hates parenting, but we love babies. (laughs) Well, that's not how babies, that's not how people saw babies in the first century. Parents loved their children, of course, but they were more of a burden. Life was very labor-intensive in those days. You have to take care of the farm, look after the animals, store, store food for winter. It was very hard work. Life was very demanding. And having little children added more to that demand, even, even all the more demanding. And so looking after children kept you from important work, literally from making a living. Plus, babies were getting sick and dying all the time, which was devastating and heartbreaking. And the reason babies and little children were considered a burden is that because they, can, they, were, they, they weren't contributing anything to the life of the family. They had no skill or talent or anything that they could provide. They could not be a productive member of the family. And so overall, childhood was not something you celebrate or you cherish or you dwell on. Now, we joke with our children and we make them promise that they will never grow up. But children, and adults or parents in the first century would never say that. On the contrary, they can't wait for the children to grow up. Children those days were seen as basically not adults. They're going through a necessary stage of life. They're growing, but that generally they're not important. They have no significant status, children that is. Which explains, maybe, why the disciples tried to forbid the children from coming to Jesus. They were simply not that important. They'd be a waste of their master's time. They thought Jesus didn't need to bother with blessing these children. That will not bring him any publicity. Any good will come out. No, nothing good will come out of it. And you know, this was not a radical position to have. A lot of people at the time also thought of children that way. This was the common view, which makes Jesus' response all the more surprising. Verse 16. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
unlike the disciples, Jesus once was not concerned about what, what enhanced his public image or what others, including his disciples, thought of him. He is concerned for people's salvation. All the people, regardless of their age, young or old, from whatever background, regardless what their social status is, Jesus was concerned for them and wanted to save them. People were bringing children to him because they wanted to bless them, and Jesus welcomed them. But he, was, he wanted to give them more than just a blessing, a temporary blessing. He wanted to give them the blessing of eternal life with him. So he embraced the children and says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He's not talking about the specific children that came to him or children wholesale. What he's talking about is that the kingdom of God belongs to those that resemble children and those that uh, the kingdom of God belongs, uh, who, are, who become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The question to us then is, what childlike character is Jesus talking about here? How, what is it that we have to resemble children like that makes us belonging to the kingdom? What is so worthy about children that makes them, that makes them deserve the kingdom? Is it their innocence, which is probably most commonly thought of in our day? I don't think so. That's not how people back then thought of children. Remember, people thought of children as a burden and they wanted just, they were waiting, they couldn't wait for them to grow up. Plus, scripture teaches us that we're all born in sin and babies or children are no exceptions. They may be cute, but they're sinners. As Voody Bakum says about children, they are vipers and diapers. <laughs> they're not so pure and they need saving. Children need saving, and so it's not their innocence that Jesus was pointing to. And it's not their innocence, what is it? Is it that their hope, the hope that they embody? As I was preparing for this, I did a Google search to see what sort of prediction comes out when I put children are. And the first one that comes is that children are the future. That is, they are the hope, our hope. So is that what Jesus meant when he was saying that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Still, that doesn't make sense. Jesus talks about the kingdom as the hope. It's the kingdom that is the hope. And it's the hope now that will be revealed in the future. That hope cannot be based on a generation of children, on people needing salvation and who are sinners. Children can't be what they lack. They can't be a hope if they don't have hope, if they don't have hope themselves. So what is Jesus talking about? I think the words of the following verse explains and clarify what it is about children that Jesus, makes them, that Jesus says makes them so worthy of the kingdom. Look at verse 17. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There's two ways to read this. Is Jesus talking about people receiving the kingdom the way a child would receive it? Or is it receiving the kingdom the way that a child would receive the kingdom? Either way, the emphasis is the same. It's on receiving the kingdom like a child. Kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it. That's outstanding. It's a gift. It's not something you earn or acquire or collect points towards. It can only be accepted or rejected. 
there's no hidden condition or fine print here. We find this hard to believe because we can't accept that there's no catch. And this is why receiving the kingdom like children is very helpful. Because children are the best receivers of gifts, aren't they? To reassure myself of that, I offered each of our children something very precious to them. To Lara, an Encanto DVD. To Carl, half an hour on the iPad. To Sophia, a box of crayons. And to Ruby, a bottle of milk. And you know what they all did? They all grabbed whatever I gave them with open eyes, with the widest smile, and they clutched onto them and they couldn't let, didn't let go of them. They were so thankful. They were full of gratitude. They never asked why or what's the catch or what do I want in return. There was a hint of that, but... <laughs> they simply saw something that they really wanted. And when it was offered to them, they clutched onto it and took it. And they were very happy and very thankful. And maybe what explains that, what makes children our best receivers of gift, is that they generally have own nothing. They have nothing to give. They can offer nothing in return. They're completely dependent on the generosity and provision of their parents. In that sense, children can only ask and receive. And in the same way, only those who ask for the kingdom and receive it as a child with gratitude, without asking God, what's the catch, or what do you want in return? Those are the people that will, by faith, enter the kingdom. But still, some insist on earning their place in the kingdom. And that's what the rich ruler tried to do, and which, we will, as we will discover, was turned away. So let's look at that more closely now. Read with me verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God. He is a person that stands in sharp contrast to children. He's a man, an adult, which automatically comes with a lot of privileges. He's a ruler, which means he has power and influence. We know that he is very wealthy, which means he can nearly afford anything that he wants. This is basically a member of the elite in society, the rich and famous, somebody whose name you would see on the VIP list. And we know that he has a bit of piety around him, considering that he kept the law, or he thought he did. And so from the disciples' perspective, this is a blessed person. A person that doesn't need a blessing or a touch from Jesus like children did. This is a person that could offer people things. He was in a position to give things. And so no wonder the disciples did not, stop, did not try to stop him from approaching Jesus. Maybe they thought, they thought he could help Jesus establish the kingdom of God. But the ruler maybe thought he was blessed, but he still wasn't sure about the eternal blessing, the most important blessing, that of eternal life. So he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it was common to ask to address Jesus as teacher, since he was teaching in public and his teaching were very popular at the time. But the ruler, this rich ruler, adds this unusual word, good, 
Good teacher, he says. Why, why does he do that? Was he trying to impress Jesus by showing him that he is aware of his teaching and that he approved of Jesus' teaching? Maybe. Or maybe he was trying to set a tone for the conversation. He tells Jesus that he is a good teacher, and in return he's hoping that Jesus would reciprocate that and would say that he is a good person or a good ruler. We don't know that for sure, but what we know is that Jesus rejected or questioned the ruler's flattery. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not denying that he is good or that he is God. This would be contrary to everything that we're reading in Scripture. Rather, Jesus is trying to lift the ruler's eyes from himself as the source and the benchmark and dispenser of good and to point his eyes upward to God, who alone is good. See, people can do good things, but that doesn't make them good. Only God is good, and by comparison to God, no one is good. So then Jesus points to God's good word. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. To which the ruler replied, All these I've kept since I was a boy. What's going on here? Is Jesus providing the five easy steps to enter the kingdom? Do these things or don't do them, as some of them are phrased, and you will be saved? Not really. These commandments are five of the famous Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai a long time ago. Every Jewish person knew that these commandments represent a large corpus of laws and rituals that God commanded people to follow. These commandments pointed to how God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God saved them from the cruel rule of Pharaoh and gave them his good law to live by. God's intention was to bless the world through his people Israel. But Israel had to abide by God's law to be that blessing. And we know from the Old Testament that the people, the Israelites, failed to be that blessing. But the rich ruler didn't feel that he himself failed. His ancestors might have, but not him. He was convinced that he followed the law. He followed the commandments. He believed that he was a good person because he kept God's law. And so he deserves to enter the kingdom. Or at least he feels that he can negotiate on that. And we see this in a lot of world religions around us, don't we? You see it in how the concept of heaven or nirvana or eternal life is, is presented as something that you earn. You rack more good than bad and you will pass. Do good things and good things will happen to you. That's the order of the day. And that's, I think, where we get this concept of nothing is free, that there's always a catch, that you have to do something to get something in return. And as you can see from the ruler's question, he had that. He, there was a hint of that. Good teacher, he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There it is. This is a person that believes he could secure a seat in heaven by bartering with Jesus. Not only that, but he believes he has earned that. 
But Jesus challenges the ruler's perception of himself and of heaven. Look again at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. This is a bit unsettling, isn't it? Sell everything and give it to the poor? Is this what Jesus expects all of us to do? Is it the pursuit of equality and helping those underprivileged? Is that the condition to enter heaven? Is it a social gospel that Jesus is speaking of here? That can't be. Because if you can enter heaven based on something you can do, then it implies that it's work-based, that you can indeed earn the kingdom, not receive it. So what Jesus intends to teach the ruler by telling him to give, to sell everything and give to the poor is that he is missing something, that he is lacking something. The law, which Jesus quoted and was pointing to, Commanded, did not command people to sell all their possession and was not against accumulating wealth. But the main point of the law is that you love your God and your neighbor from all you've got. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he replied from Matthew, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law was given to help us understand how to love God and our people and neighbor. But the law also showed us that we can never fully love God and people as we should. The love that the law demands or requires is unconditional love. It's a love that gives without expecting anything in return. A love that prioritizes the glory of God and the need of others above our own needs and our desires. So the rich ruler had that lacking. And I think the reason why Jesus told the ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor, specifically, not the temple, for example, is because the poor would not be able to pay him back. The ruler would get absolutely nothing from distributing his wealth on the needy. They have nothing to give him. They can only receive. And by giving, away all, by giving them away all his money, he becomes like them, helpless and dependent, only in a position to receive. And that's when he can follow Jesus and enter heaven, when he knows that he has nothing that he could offer God. But the ruler couldn't do that. Verse 23 says, When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. That's ironic, isn't it? The man who has everything, the man who was rich and famous, who had money and could buy anything, could not buy the one thing that matters the most and which costs nothing, eternal life. He was happy, but as a result, ended up being sad, turned out to be sad. So even if entering the heaven, entering heaven, was based on doing good things and being good, the ruler still failed. Yes, he was able to obey some good commandments, but couldn't fully obey the law. He didn't love God and his neighbor with all his heart and his soul and his mind. 
In that sense, he was lacking. He loved his wealth more than God. He couldn't meet the standards of God, which is Jesus' point. And neither can any of us. We all fall, fall short of obeying God's perfect law. Because of the sin that's in us, we could never be pleasing to God on our own. That's why the kingdom of God can never be earned. It can only be received and embraced. Let's look at that third section on the outline and see what that means. Read with me from verse 24. Jesus looked at him, at the ruler, and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. With statements like these, it's important to explain what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that the rich can never enter the kingdom of God because the kingdom is only for poor people. Jesus is not anti-money or hates rich people. He's identifying and he's picking on rich people here because it's the riches that, that, are, that are in question. Riches give a false sense of entitlement and self-sufficiency. Remember, the ruler wanted to negotiate an offer with Jesus. A poor person or a child could never do that. They have nothing. And so it is impossible for any person that is reliant on their own resources or strength or intellect or religiosity to enter the kingdom. From a human point of view, that's not how the world operates. We're not used to receiving things freely. We're used to there being a catch or something that we can do. That's why those listening to Jesus asked, who then can be saved? In other words, if this capable and resourceful and blessed ruler can't make it, who can? And that's a fair question, I think, something we all ask. Who can be saved? And the answer is very simple. No one. No one can save themselves by themselves. But the good news is what Jesus said in verse 27. Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So make no mistakes. It is impossible for any person, for any one of us, to do anything that would grant him or her admission to heaven. It is only possible because God did something. When Jesus said these words, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to fulfill what God had long ordained a long time ago to save humanity. He was going to be crucified and rise on the third day. The reason why we can't walk in and out of heaven whenever we want or as much as we want is because we're sinners. Our sin makes us enemies from God and separate us from him. And there's no amount of good work that we can do that will erase that. Only Jesus' death will pay the penalty of our sin. And this, his resurrection will give us life. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we have the means to enter heaven. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. Because of that, we have the means to enter heaven. And when we hear something like that, we're tempted to think about our own sacrifices, right? What about our sacrifices? What we do for God? Does that count for anything? 
Does, that care, does God care about any of that? That's what the disciples were thinking. And that's what Peter verbalized and put into words on behalf of the disciples. Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come eternal life. Peter and the disciples felt that they made major sacrifices to follow Jesus. They were presumably left behind their families and their jobs and homes and security. Is this worth anything, they're thinking? Was this something that God cared about? Interestingly, Jesus, who was about to offer nothing less than his life, did not belittle the disciples' sacrifices. He did not dismiss them. He acknowledges that following him requires putting him first, which may involve abandoning things and relationships that, are, that hinder the advancement of the gospel. This doesn't mean that we enter the kingdom by doing things or by making sacrifices. Rather, the point is that those who follow Jesus and make him the priority are fully committed to the kingdom. This involves making sacrifices and possibly letting go of dear ones and dear things, which is always painful. But what Jesus is saying is that this pain is worth it. Because when we put our trust in Jesus to save us, he brings us into his family. We become members of the family of God, which is the church on earth. And so whoever leaves their family for the sake of the kingdom will get a much larger and more loving family through the church, plus the blessing of eternal life. In other words, any sacrifices that we make to follow Jesus pale in comparison to what we will receive through him. So embrace the kingdom. Follow Jesus despite the relatively small sacrifices because eternal life with him is definitely worth it. Let's conclude. Who gets to enter heaven? This is the most important question you can ask yourself. And the answer is anyone who is prepared to receive the kingdom like a child, as a free and precious gift, without asking, what's the catch? Or, God, what do you want in return? And just because it is free, just because we have the kingdom and access to the kingdom for free, it doesn't mean that it's cheap. It doesn't mean that nobody paid the price for it. In fact, it is the most expensive gift in the universe. The kingdom of God is the most precious thing because it cost the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price so we can enjoy being with him forever, free of charge. The death of Jesus on the cross gave us that opportunity if we accept it, if we receive it. If you'd like that, if you want to enter heaven, all you have to do is pray a short prayer. Tell God that you're sorry for your sins and that you want to follow Jesus and live for him by faith all the way until he brings you to heaven. It's that simple. And in a short while, 
We'll have a few minutes to do that. And if you've prayed this prayer before and you're living for Christ, remember that following Jesus is worth every sacrifice you make. So embrace the kingdom. Let advancing the gospel of Christ be the cost at any cost, be the mission that guides your life. Because what we have received in Jesus far outweighs anything we could possibly, could possibly give. In 1956, Jim Elliott and four of his friends traveled from America to Ecuador to share the gospel with the native people there. Elliott and his friends knew the risks, knew that the mission was dangerous, and that they could be killed for trespassing on, on the native's territory. But they went anyway, leaving behind their family and loved ones. A few months later, Elliot and three of his friends were indeed killed, and their bodies mutilated and wound downstream. Later, as they were searching their, their, through their documents, they found the following words in Elliot's journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to think about what you heard and possibly make a prayer to God, asking him to receive the kingdom as children, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because the kingdom of God belongs to children, to such people such as children who will receive it. Thank you because we can never save ourselves, but you do not leave us to that destiny. You've gave us yourself, your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us with the unconditional love that the law requires so that we can be with you. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for making it possible for us to be with you free of charge. We pray, Lord, that you work in us and you help us to follow you, do that. Help us to put our trust in you and to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. In his name we pray. Amen.